0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a bevy of my colleagues, of course, my two co-hosts, Chris Gerides and Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Mark. Hello. Good to see you. And we've also got Bernard, Bernard Yaros. Bernard is our Renaissance man, speaks 15 languages, is a, is a guru, a squash guru. What else, Bernard, should I tell the, the world about you? <laughs> you're just and I'm not joking I, like I'm joking I'm not joking uh real renaissance man good to have you and thank you Mr. Caymans every time I see Adam uh, on Zoom I think of Dr Zeus uh or you know the because the see those two doors in the back there I don't know it looks very Dr Zeus like uh I don't know it's really Chris you don't, you don't see that wow no not at all <laughs> what do you see
1: I see two doors. Uh, oh,
2: okay. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> ink inkblot test.
3: <laughs> That's right. Well, Maybe it's I let's don't know make what I'm deal. talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone sees something different in my basement here.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, very much so. Hey, and I'm uh, I'm, I'm sounding a little remote. I forgot my uh, microphone, which is, I can't believe I forgot my microphone. But I'm here in New York. I spoke at the RMS conference uh uh, um, a good group of folks, so several hundred people. And I, I had influence. Uh, so I did a poll at the beginning of the uh, of my talk. And I said, um, how many of you think the probability of recession over the next 12, 18 months is greater than 50%? And I tell you, 95% of the hands went up. I gave my talk. I said, okay, let's do the poll again. How many of you think uh, the Probability recession is greater than fifty percent, and I think I I got him down to thirty percent of the hands went up, you know. So uh, I don't know. What do you think? I, I didn't realize I was that persuasive. Maybe because these were all risk guys, so maybe they you know, they're easily persuadable. I'm not sure, but uh, they. They definitely changed their mind. You skeptical, Chris?
1: Was there a uh, lunch or happy hour after you? Is that? Uh... Uh,
0: yeah, That could. you know is that what you no, think it was?
1: Just, know, I don't you know. Get that guy off the stage. Huh? <laughs> let's, let's get going. <laughs> let's get going.
0: <laughs> make him happy. Let, 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 make the economist happy. Let's just get going. I should say we have our own conference, right? The economics team has its conference. Uh, and that's uh, coming up June. When is that? June 20th, I believe. Is that oh, right? Yes, that's right. And it's in Wilmington, Delaware. Of course, we picked Wilmington because it's very close to our suburban Philly office. Well, former office, right, because we are now fully remote. Uh, But it's equidistant between D.C. and New York. And also, of course, Wilmington has a pretty sizable group of financial institutions. They're mostly consumer finance. And so we thought that'd be a good spot. But we'd love to see you there uh, at that conference. Uh, and uh, if you're interested, let us know. Uh, we'll make sure you get an invitation to that because that'll be very good to have you. And I think we're all, are all you guys speaking? Or I know Chris, you're speaking at the conference. Yeah, I am. Yep. You are. Okay. On house prices, I believe. Yes. Housing generally. Housing generally. Yeah, very good. So that, that should be good. Okay, we've got a lot to talk about here today. Uh, we got a lot of inflation news this past week. Uh, the, of course, the all-important consumer price index. I thought we'd run that down a little bit and talk about inflation, inflation prospects, uh, what it all means for monetary policy and the economic outlook. Uh, I also want to talk about the debt limit. We talked a bit about that last week, but uh, Adam and uh, Bernard... Uh, did a lot of really good work here trying to understand uh, what the potential impact of a debt limit breach might be on regional economies, uh, state economies more specifically. I want to go through that. Uh, and then, of course, I want to play the game, the six game, uh, and we've got a lot of players. So that, that should be fun. And listener questions. Uh, we've been, As uh, you may know, we've been collecting questions from uh, folks out there and. Marissa's been compiling them, and uh, we're going to go through a few of those if we have time uh, to do that. Sound like a good game plan? Everyone's good with that? Okay, very good. Okay, let's go. Let's turn to inflation, and uh, I guess the the headline is the Consumer Price Index for the month of April. Uh, Marissa, do you want to give us the rundown?
2: Sure. We also got the PPI last week, but people really care about the CPI, right? So let's do that first. Um So CPI rose 0.4% month over month. That was true for both headline CPI and for core CPI. On the headline, that was a little bit softer than we were expecting. We were expecting it to tick up half a percentage point. Core was right in line with expectations. Um, The increase in CPI and the acceleration over the prior month um, when prices advanced in March, 0.1% was expected because we knew there was a tick up in gasoline prices over the month and indeed that's where most of that increase comes from. Um core on a month to month basis stayed the same pace as it was in March and it's really been averaging that 0.4% month over month for about the last 9 months. It's been in the 0.3, 0.4, 0.5 range for the last core, 9
0: months. Core being
2: Core excluding um, energy prices and food prices is what core inflation is. And we strip those out because they can be very volatile from month to month. Um, On a year-over-year basis, however, total CPI fell to 4.9% year-over-year, down from 5% in the prior month. And that's the slowest pace of growth since May of 2021, CORE advanced 5.5% over the year, and that's also a tenth lower than it was in March, the the year-over-year reading. It's been pretty much 5.5% year-over-year since the start of this year. And just for context, it peaked, the peak in CORE year-over-year growth was 6.6% back in September. Um, Getting into some of the details about these movements, food prices were flat over the month. Grocery prices declined, um, but that was offset by an increase for the second month in a row in food away from home, so dining out kind of food. That keeps rising. Grocery prices are falling or flat. Um, Energy prices rose 0.6% in April after falling in two of the previous months, However, that was all in gasoline and motor fuel prices, utility prices, energy services fell over the month. Um, Core goods prices were up um, over the month, thanks to a very large increase in the price of used vehicles. So used vehicle prices were up 4.4%. And that was the first time used vehicle prices have risen since June of last year. On the other hand, new vehicle prices fell a bit, 0.2% over the month. And that was the first monthly decline in new vehicle prices since April of 21. Um, I think the probably the most interesting thing to delve into in the report was the prices of shelter. So shelter prices make up a very large Portion of the overall CPI basket. They make up more than 40% of the CPI basket. And we've been talking about this on the podcast because it's really key that we start seeing some deceleration in shelter prices in order to get um, the CPI inflation kind of back down closer to the Fed's comfort zone. So shelter prices decelerated for the second month in a row. So they rose 0.4% month over month, but that was slower than in March, which was slower than in February, which sounds good on the face of it. But if you dig into it a little bit more, the only reason that shelter prices decelerated was because hotel prices had a very big drop. So included in shelter is rents, owner's equivalent rent, which is the implicit price a homeowner pays to him or herself, to basically rent their own home. And then there's lodging away from home. So the lodging away from home prices fell 3% over the month, whereas owner's equivalent rent stayed the same at 0.5% month over month. And rent prices actually ticked up a tenth of a percentage point from 0.5% to 0.6% in April. Uh, Other categories, medical care services and transportation services fell over the month, the prices of those things fell. And then finally, uh, something we're watching, and uh, Bernard, I know you calculate this and that the Fed is keyed in on is so-called super core inflation, which is core inflation. So again, stripping out energy and food prices, but also stripping out rent prices. Uh, Those rose 0.3% month over month for the second straight month. Super core is up 5.1%. Year over year, that's the slowest pace of year over year growth since May of last year. So bit of a mixed bag, mostly good, I think. I don't think, you know, curious to hear what you guys think, but I don't think this is anything that's going to change the Fed's mind uh, in in their coming actions for the rest of the year. Um, and I'll just, just briefly tell you that the PPI came out as well for the month of April, that was up 0.2% month producer, on month in the April. Producer,
1: price, the index, producer right. price
2: index. Right. So this is sort of like before the prices get to more wholesale type prices before what they mean? get to final uh, sale. So those rose um, after they fell for uh, in March and they were unchanged in February. So this is the first increase in producer prices since January. But over the month, producer prices are up 2.4%, and that's the slowest rate of growth since January of 2021. And for context, they peaked at 12% in March of 2022, right after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine.
0: Great. So that that's a lot of great detail. Big picture, consumer price inflation, CPI inflation peaked in uh, June of 2022, last summer, Uh, around 9%, depending on whether you seasonally adjust or you apparently don't seasonally adjust, but let's just say 9%. As of April of this year, that's year over year, it was 9%. Year over year, as of April, the last data point, we're down to five. And in our forecast, our baseline most likely outlook for the economy we have CPI inflation going back to the Federal Reserve's target, which we estimate for CPI to be 2.5%. So we go from 5 to 2.5% roughly over the next year. So when we have this conversation a year from now, we'll be back close to the Federal Reserve's target, at least uh, as measured by the consumer price index. Obviously, there's the other index out there that uh, the Fed focuses on, the consumer expenditure player, and that's where they Spend most of their energy, that's a 2% in target. I'm not going to go into any detail here. We've done that before on the podcast. But that's the baseline. So Marissa, uh that outlook feel right to you? Is that consistent with your thinking?
2: I think it's according to script, as you would say. Yeah. I script. mean, yes. Yeah. Um the the only thing that we have to start seeing is rental prices start to come down more, right? they've They've kind of not moved very much for several months., uh, and that's key, I think, to this forecast is that, we get the, the price of housing in the CPI to start moving downward, which we're expecting will happen pretty quickly. I mean, this report was for April, right? And we've been predicting that we would start seeing some of that down downward movement around June-ish, right? So middle of this year. So we still have a little bit of time to see if that forecast comes to fruition, but we, we want shelter prices to move lower since okay. they're such a huge component.
0: Okay, so let me... Uh... Color provide more color there in terms of the baseline outlook, and then I'll I want to turn to uh, Chris and Bernard and Adam to get their reaction to it. Uh, I my I I thought the CPI number was pretty darn good. Uh, you, you know, inflation is too hot, no doubt about it. It but it's cooling, and uh, it does feel like it. It's headed back to the Fed's target here in a to script as you say by this time next year, and I. I feel like I can say that with more confidence because I feel confident to your point about the cost of housing services. That is going to decelerate. I know that it's going to happen because that's tied to rents ultimately with a long lag. And rents have gone flat to down since the end of last year through the early part of this year for good fundamental reasons. There's a lot more supply coming into the market as the supply chain's ease and and uh, labor markets and uh, normalize on the other side of the pandemic. We're just getting, going to get a lot more multifamily rentals constructed. And uh, there's less demand because the, the previous surge in rents, uh, 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 young households can't afford the rent. Households aren't forming. That's demand destruction. I feel really very confident in that. And that's a third of the plus of the CPI index. Mm-hmm. I also feel very confident in, in uh, further declines in vehicle prices. I mean, that decline in new vehicle prices that happened in April, we've been waiting for that for quite some time. And that feels like that's a start of a trend of negative monthly uh, uh, price numbers here going forward because we're getting more supply there too. Japan, Germany couldn't produce enough vehicles because of their supply chain issues, which were more pernicious than the ones here in the U.S., but they're figuring it out now, uh, and we're getting more supply, more cars on dealer lots. We had Mike Brisson on with Jonathan Smoke, and they're on board with the idea that that we're going to see vehicle prices decline. I feel very confident about that. And the last piece of the puzzle is that super core you mentioned, which is very tied into uh, labor-intensive service activities, from healthcare to hospitality to personal services and education. That's labor-intensive. That goes to wage growth, that goes to the Fed's efforts to slow the economy's growth rate down, ease the labor market pressures, get unemployment moving a little bit further north, getting wage growth down so that inflation on the service side of the economy can come in as well. There, I feel less confident, but I'm feeling more and more confident uh, that that's going to happen, given what's going on in the rest of the economy, labor market, wage growth dynamics, and everything else. So I feel pretty, pretty darn good. And by the way, that's all going to happen, in my view, uh, without a recession and without any further increases in rates by the Fed. The Fed, I think, is done. Uh, that The federal funds rate target is now just over 5% given the last rate move that occurred a week ago, and that's the end of the story. OK, I just said a lot. Uh, feels like a pretty sanguine, r- reasonably sanguine outlook, a slow session outlook. Uh, not a recession outlook. Uh, let me turn to Bernard, Bernard, because I'm letting Chris kind of gear up here to respond. But let me <laughs> let me go to Bernard. Bernard, what do you think of that? What I just laid out there for you? Uh, are, are you on board with that, or would you push back on that?
4: No, I'm I'm definitely on board on that, and I think we're not giving enough credit to we're, we are starting to see some signs of of housing disinflation. So, if you look at uh, the year over year Growth in uh, the CPI for rent of shelter. So that includes the rent that tenants are paying, as well as the owner's equivalent rent, which is the hypothetical rent that a homeowner would have to pay itself to, to pay themselves to you know to stay in their home. That has already peaked. It, it peaked in March, and for the first time ever since uh, early 2021, it's no longer rising year over year. Um, and this is important. Uh, this is not a. I wouldn't say that this is a fluke because rents are sticky once you have a trend, once you see a trend in, in, in rental prices that has staying power. So, uh, so I would expect, we are starting to see the whites of the eyes of rental uh, disinflation, that's gonna continue and it's going to be a, an even larger source of disinflation on the overall CPI and especially the core CPI, just because of its the new uh, weights or the new relative importance ascribed to uh, shelter and especially to rent of shelter is the largest it's been uh, since at least the late 1990s. So that's really going to help uh, bring us, You know, I, I think that's going to help contribute to uh, the sanguine inflation outlook that you uh, laid out. Uh, I would also like to... Uh, make one point about used vehicles. Used vehicles were a major sort. You know, they put they added about fifteen basis points to the month over month gain in the core CPI.
0: five percent. Uh, so, in, you know that, that that's a pretty big number. 0. It's a it's a big number. Yeah, 15.
4: yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And I I would expect in the next month or so we're probably going to get a few more. Hot prints for used car vehicle used car vehicles, but it's not going to persist for that long because we're already starting to see wholesale used uh, vehicle prices, which tend to lead retail prices by up to three months. Those have started to fall, uh, at least uh, starting in the month of April, uh, and then. I'd say the other big statistic we got this week was the Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey. And that also showed that over the first quarter, banks were tightening their lending standards for uh, new and uh, used auto uh, loans and even auto uh, loan demand weakened over the first quarter. So it just feels that uh, used car vehicle prices are not going to be adding significantly for that, you know, much beyond the very near term. Uh, and then within core services, excluding rent of shelter, so this is the super core measure, there were a lot of pockets of weakness. Rental vehicle prices were weak. Airfares were down. And this actually comes as domestic airline capacity is is finally rising above 2019 levels. Uh the weakness in in lodging away from home, that also was consistent with other data I've been looking at, such as um, you know, average daily rates for hotels. Um, so there's those pockets of weakness also make me you know, feel comfortable in, in in the super core measure, which uh, the Fed is keyed into, you know, that we should see some further easing. And there already, we've seen a lot of disinflation at least year over year.
0: Got it. Okay, Chris, so where is this forecast wrong? Uh, or, or, or is it? I mean, you're on board with this or not?
1: I'm bored uh, certainly with the idea that inflation is going to come down, right? We have a lot baked in the cake that uh, you and Bernard already mentioned, right? Housing is, is just going to take time. We can already see it right from other data. There's no no question there. And I agree with the used car price is probably a little bit of a fluke there and new car prices certainly on the way down. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not disputing uh, that. I'll even throw you one more and this will then lead to my next point. Um, Big declines in lodging, right? We said, what do we say? 3.6, what? 3.4% on the month. Yeah, that was large. Big declines in car rental prices, down 3.2 in the month. Big decline in airfare, down 2.6% on the month. And uh, sporting events, also big, I can't remember, I think seven, eight, something like that on the month. Oh, is that right? Um, what are all those categories have in common? They're all tourism, right? Yeah. All discretionary spending, right? That's the first thing that consumers By will By
0: the take. way, that's not consistent with the cost of the ticket to go to see the Sixers play the Celtics. <laughs> I don't know what, where that's coming from.
2: Playoff tickets excluded.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> that'll, uh,
1: well, that, this is April, right? core recreational service prices then. That'll that'll show up in
0: May. Oh, in May. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> or, it's seasonally the- adjusted anyway, so <laughs> Yeah. So Sorry. I see a
1: consumer that might be uh, a bit weak here, right? And that's certainly oh, helping with the inflation coming down. But you know, my fear still is that we overdo it, right? Even if the Fed doesn't hike anymore, there's a lot of weakness already built in here.
0: Oh, so you're saying that, yes, inflation, inflation down. But that might be a window into some weakness in consumer spending on services, which has been kind of helping support growth here. Is that what you're saying? That's oh. right. That's oh interesting.
1: Right. So that we always talked about the consumer firewall, right? Yeah. Is that, is that the first chink perhaps in the oh in the firewall?
0: Okay. The well, they of course it is important to put in a bit of context I, and I don't I don't know that data as well, but my in my mind's eye there were some months with some pretty large increases in all those prices, no doubt. all those things. So no doubt. All, almost, it's almost like they're just coming a little bit back down to earth compared to where they were, but oh that, very interesting. Okay. Uh, and are you uh, also on board with the idea that the Fed probably has ended its rate hikes here? You know, Given that inflation outlook, given what's happening in the labor market, you know, job growth is slowing, we talked about that last week on the podcast, given financial conditions, which have t- clearly tightened given the banking crisis, it feels like, at least for the foreseeable future, we're not going to see any more rate hikes here from the FERS. Are you on board with that as well?
1: I am, especially given that last point, because I don't know that the financial banking turmoil is is over, right? And is over. Still, some right cracks okay. in
0: the foundation. Oh, okay, and so you know, I take all that what I just said with and conclude. Well, that makes me feel more comfortable that we're going to be able to navigate through without an economic downturn or recession. But you, that's not where you go. Your mind goes. Uh, it
1: certainly is helpful,
0: right? If we had not okay.
1: if we had seen a different report here, if inflation had been really robust and, you know, not showing these signs of weakness, then it'd be a different story. So it gives me a little bit more hope. But I still yeah. see yeah see okay. some of the uh, the other downsides here as well.
0: Got it. Before we leave the topic of inflation, I want to turn to you, Adam, because you do uh, a lot of work with uh, understanding what's going on with regional economies. And there, you know, inflation's been an issue across the country obviously, but it's been more problem in some parts of the country than others. Do you want to explain what what you've uh, uncovered there? Sure.
3: So there have been some interesting dynamics there. So if you go back to when inflation really started to spike, it it was pretty clear that the places where the demand side of the economy was especially strong, Mountain West, Southeast, uh, they were experiencing especially high inflation. So uh, we were seeing markets like Phoenix, Atlanta, Tampa, where inflation was, you know, twice the rate at, at some points, uh, you know, compared to what it was in New York, San Francisco, some other markets along those lines. The last, probably starting about six months ago, I would say, end of 2022 into 2023, we start to see some convergence there, where, right, the you know, the economies that were struggling for a lot of the post-pandemic era were. Picking back up, I think we were seeing the demand side strengthen there. House prices start to maybe normalize a little bit more in some of these hotter markets, and I think you were seeing some convergence uh, in terms of inflation. But interestingly, the last last couple of months, we've actually seen you know the Northeast in particular start to come down uh, come down again a little bit more rapidly than the rest of the country. So. Uh, we're seeing some gaps open up again, uh, where you know New York actually experienced a little bit of above-average inflation for for a few months relative to the U.S., and actually has experienced, along with Philadelphia, disinflation now over the last couple of months. Uh, so prices have actually fallen in a couple of those markets. Oh, whereas oh. nationally, obviously, they're still rising.
0: Did, what do you, you mean disinflation or deflation? You mean disinflation, slower growth in? No,
3: I mean, I mean, I mean. Uh, that prices actually have declined on a month-over-month month basis in oh. New York and in Philadelphia just oh, over oh, a couple oh, months, oh, I guess.
0: Oh, because oh, of energy prices, I guess, no? The, yeah, and I
3: think part of it just, I mean, there's volatility in the regional data, so I don't yeah. want to read too much into that, but yeah, I think part of that w- would be energy prices. The the shelter costs uh, measures, we don't have as much granularity in terms of, you know whether it's driven by lodging or by the rental market or what, segment of the housing market it may be, uh, but definitely softer of late in in the Northeast. And I think some of that reflects the fact that some of these broader headwinds around bank failures, tech layoffs, we're seeing that clearly in California and in the West, but also affecting office-using markets, places like New York, Boston, D.C., I think all of that is, has been kind of a drag on the demand side of the economy, and, and it's it's pushing inflation a bit lower uh, than elsewhere in the country.
0: Okay. In my kind of my thinking about regional inflation, my sort of uh, working thought is that the big differences are uh, generally around the cost of housing services, which goes back to rents. And so if you're in a market where housing is very strong, absorption strong, rent Growth very strong, that results in stronger rates of inflation because housing is such a big part of the CPI, and that uh, is a a large reason for that the higher rates of inflation in the housing parts of the country where the housing market was it was juiced everywhere, but particularly juiced like in the in the western part of the United States and you mentioned Florida, and now that the housing market's cooling off, that uh, those differences are abating generally speaking. Is that roughly right?
3: That's roughly right, but we've seen that start to kind of unwind a little bit the last couple of months. So something I'm watching now to see if that if that sort of those gaps reopen a little bit. But everything you described, I would say, if, if you ask me that two three months ago, I'd say that's spot on. It's exactly mm-hmm. what we've seen last couple months. It's getting a little bit the story starting to change a
0: little bit. It looks like. Hmm. Okay, we'll stay tuned. We'll we'll see. Uh, okay. Very good. The one thing that people didn't call out, and I'm just going to throw it on the table, not that we have to talk about it. The thing that really worries me about you know, how I could be wrong, why the forecast of getting back to the Fed's target inflation rate of 2.5% on the CPI by this time next year is medical care inflation. Because you know we've been getting a string of declines in medical care service inflation for some wacko reasons, going back to the way the, the, the BLS measures this thing. And that that's going to reverse itself, and, and I, that's where I worry. Uh, Bernard, just say yes or no. Do I have that right?
4: Yeah, you have that right. yes. Okay.
0: All right. Very good. But we'll, we'll, that's really going into the DNA, and maybe we'll do that next time. Uh, we'll do that next time. Okay. Um, let's let's play the statistics game, and we got a lot of players. Uh, the game is we each put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out with uh, questions, uh, deductive reasoning, uh, some clues. The best uh, statistic is one that's not so easy. We get it right away, although Marissa's getting everything right away. I don't know, you know, how we solve that problem. And I won't say chat GPT, but I won't say I just won't say it. <laughs> and she's mad. She's upset. She's so, so upset she's still on mute. She doesn't know she's on mute. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, and uh, not so hard that we never get it and it's if it, it's it's a plus if it's a relevant a statistic that came out this week or relevant to the topic at hand okay uh the tradition is we we go with Marissa first although I'm kind of sort of starting to rethink that tradition but uh we're gonna, we'll, we'll stay at least one more a week with that tradition Marissa you're up. what's your statistic
2: my statistic is 46.7 percent 46.7%.
0: Seven percent. Is it uh, a statistic that came out this week?
2: Yeah.
0: A government statistic. Per- Senior per- loan per- officer, per- sure per- yeah. the Fed is a government agency.
4: Yep. Yep.
0: Okay. <laughs> See how she does that, Bernard? She does like a head thing. She, <laughs> she delays to make you think, oh, maybe it's not a government entity or it's, it's ambiguous. A, it's, it's, well, like, I had to yeah. pause
2: because I mean they are independently they well, have just, some independence. Uh, yeah, from, yeah, okay. Okay, right, fine, okay. fine. Yes. It's, part it's from, of the, from the, yeah, okay. it's from the senior loan officer survey. And is that the net
0: percent of senior loan officers sir, 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 sir uh, senior loan officers that said that standards for CNI loans commercial industrial loans is
2: uh is tightening? Yes, but you need to be more specific. Okay, I'm
0: gonna be very specific for uh small yes banks. Okay, small, for
2: our,
1: small our businesses, you know for small businesses.
0: Small business. Oh, sorry, I said small banks, small businesses, yeah. small businesses. Sorry about that. Small businesses. Bernard, you see how that's done? I'm just yep. saying, <laughs> you see how that's done? That was masterful, right, Chris? You don't have to say nice. It he nice. interrogates <laughs> you to death. <laughs> But you knew, the, you knew that, didn't you? You let me do that on my own. You knew the answer to that question, didn't you? No, no. Oh, you did Okay, no. great. Okay, very good. Now I feel better. Okay, yeah. explain, Mercer
2: Why did I pick this? Yes. Well, I mean, Bernard mentioned it when, when he was talking, right, about um, lending on auto loans. So I'm looking at the Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey pretty closely for lending to businesses and in particular, small businesses, because small businesses make up, uh, account for a lot of the job growth in the country. And if small businesses who are much more likely to go to a bank for credit than a big business who can tap capital and debt markets, if they can't get financing, then they can't invest in capital, they can't hire. So um this is an increase. Obviously, this has been rising now for some time, several quarters about the last year, we've started to see banks saying that they're tightening lending standards. And this is the tightest that lending standards have been since we were coming out of the financial crisis. So coming out of the recession that started in late 2007 and ended in early 09. So this is as high as they've been since then. And higher than any tightening on the series that we saw even during the 2001 recession. So you have to go back after 09, you have to go back to the 1990s to see a number this high in the number of the net percent of banks tightening standards on small businesses. You know and
0: Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, you know, following all the turmoil in banks with SVB and First Republic, We've been waiting for a reading, readings to show us how uh, lenders may have reacted to this if they're um, you know, battening down the hatches, expecting tighter credit or raising the cost of funds, and they are indeed doing both of those things.
0: You know what struck me, and maybe uh, there's a good explanation, the, the survey that you're mentioning was done after the crisis. Yeah. If you go back to the survey that was done in January before the crisis, the difference between the, the two, not that big, uh, maybe a little bit of an increase in the net percent saying they're tightening their underwriting. And this is not just for CI, but commercial real estate, for uh, uh, con- uh, credit cards, uh, uh, all, all types of lending. There was some further ostensible tightening in underwriting, but not as much as I thought might have happened given just how significant the hit to the banking sector was. was did, you, did that strike you as
2: well? Well, I, I looking at this series in particular, I thought it was interesting that the jump was bigger in the, the first quarter report yeah. between the first and the fourth than it was between this report and the first quarter. So standards tightened more at the beginning of this year before the banking turmoil than they did since the banking turmoil.
0: Now of course, it's kind of cumulative, right because you're you tightened in q one and now you're saying I'm tightening again right so the 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 uh, amount of tightening is quite significant I'm not saying that but i i I thought we'd see more of an increase chris are you, are you of the same yeah. mind were you surprised or was that what you expected
1: well I, I guess I expected it actually to be a in this range, because we yeah. Yeah. banks had already tightened. So, much, okay, right. So, how much more yeah. can you tighten? How much more can
0: you tighten? I guess <laughs> if I'm right? not going to lend, I can't not lend any more than I'm not if I'm not going to lend. So, right,
1: right. And the what uh, a drawback of the survey is that it doesn't really tell you anything about the magnitude. Yeah, right. It just tells right. you I'm tightening, but is that a little? Is that a lot? It could range uh, across different institutions as well. So, it, it's a good measure. it's an important measure, but it, it's not a complete measure uh, from that standpoint.
0: yeah, the other thing that struck me and this this goes to the Federal Reserve H8 data. This is the balance sheet information from the banking system and you look at uh CNI loans outstanding. you can see that how much how much C, commercial industrial loans those are again those are loans from banks to businesses that are on the books of the banks. that fell when the crisis hit. But it's been stable since then, and it doesn't indicate any further decline or weakening mm-hmm. in CNI loans outstanding, and that's the case for both small business and for larger business. Have you have you noticed that as well? No, I didn't see that. So. You, you no. didn't see that, Chris. No, no. Oh yeah. So I'm I'm almost coming to the conclusion that the banking crisis is obviously an additional headwind, but it's not like a hurricane, you know. Uh, it doesn't feel at least so far. As you, at least not as you yet, said, right? That's it, it, it's not. It may not be over. You know for sure. The bank stock. The regional bank stocks are still, uh, still under a lot of pressure. But so far, and, and there a lot. You know that we need more data and evidence. But so far, it doesn't feel like this thing is as serious as it possibly, certainly as it could have been, or uh, certainly what I was fearing. Now, do you think
1: there's a uh, demand response? Businesses, consumers, just. Not applying for credit because they they have a feeling they wouldn't get it in the first place. So, well,
2: kind demand is, has weakened quite a bit, right? When you look across all these categories, right. and the senior loan officer survey asks not about tightening standards only, but they also ask about demand for all these kinds of loans and lines oh. of credit, and that's that's weakened across the board. So fewer businesses are asking for credit.
0: Yeah. I mean, but I, I keep going. Well, the, the, the link between the banking crisis and the economy, at least in my mind, is banking crisis, underwriting standards, loan growth, economic activity. Banking standards tighten, but not as much as I feared. And then loan growth hasn't, you know, it's not it's not growing, which isn't great, but it's not falling, which is good. So the you know it makes me more comfortable. That the banking crisis isn't going to undermine, you know, the thing that does the economy in, at least so
4: again so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Okay. All right, Bernard, you're up. What's your number?
4: Uh, my number is six point one percent.
0: You know, the way he said that, he was kind of disappointed in his own number, right? He goes, "Oh, six point one. <laughs> it's not really a really good
4: number." Yeah. Is it from too the CPI? Easy. From the what? Is, is it, it right, from right. the CPI report? No, no, no. Oh
2: no oh, no no. is it a oh, government statistic
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes it is it came out this week
4: it came out just today
0: oh it came oh. out today it, it, well
4: what came out today ui, claims, UI claims no PPI. oh we don't cover see. it on uh on uh ev oh okay oh now that's an invitation oh, well, then to I look I'm at what's on know. ev <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's
2: it's talked about
4: here.
2: a lot here uh I don't know, guys. Do you guys know? Is it a, is it an, is it a financial uh, variable?
4: No, it's uh, to give you a hint. It's uh, tied to labor.
0: Oh, what came out? And it, it's not It's not in the uh, jobless claims numbers. No, no, no. Okay, which were a little disappointing, weren't they? Or a little surprising, I guess, sort of, right?
4: Yeah, they, they jumped were, up. They, quite a they jumped up two hundred
0: sixty-two thousand initial weekly claims. Although that's pretty consistent where we were, you'd expect it in a, you know, in a typical economy, wouldn't you, Bernard? Or is that hot too high? Am I, is that higher than you feel comfortable with?
2: It's like one thousand claims below the break-even point of no job growth. I really, think. that feels yeah. Right. There's
4: a, there's been a quirk in a uh, uh, UI claims. Uh, I think that's due to a bit, uh, there's some quirk going on in Massachusetts. So UI claims, oh. non-seasonally adjusted, have been double. I think doubled over the past two weeks.
0: Oh, so something weird is going on.
4: It's not, and this has been this has happened before uh, in Massachusetts. I'm not quite sure what exactly is, but.
0: Okay. Yeah, the
3: Massachusetts UI data has been squirreling really a few times since the pandemic. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, really weird. Okay, well that okay, that's interesting. Okay, this uh, put us out out of our misery. What release is it? It's the Atlanta Wage Growth Tracker. Oh, oh. that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, explain. Yeah.
4: So the Atlanta uh, Wage Growth Tracker. This is um, it's tracking the median year over year percent change in the hourly wage of individuals. Uh, and this is the three-month moving average, so it's a bit smooth. It doesn't capture it because it, the underlying data is quite volatile, uh, and it's down only marginally from 6.4% in uh, March. Uh, so this is still, you know, it shows that wage growth has peaked, uh, but it's been pretty, uh, it's been pretty sticky at uh, at the low six percent uh, range, um, and this is still way too high of a pace um, for us to be really you know, at a labor market that's consistent with 2% inflation. And for that, we really need wage growth to settle closer to 3.5%, uh, assuming underlying productivity about 1.5%. Um, and I would say the big reason why wage growth is still too elevated is because there's still a lot of excess demand in the labor market. Uh, nationally, uh, labor demand, which we like to define as the sum of employment and job openings, Is greater than labor supply or the labor force by close to four million, Uh, and some of the past work that we've done shows that you know this excess labor demand really needs to shrink from four million to at least two million for wage growth to settle around uh, a target three point five percent pace, and because Adams here, you know, I'll, I'll add a regional angle. We've also Estimated about three quarters of this reduction in ex- excess labor demand really needs to come from the South, and this is not just due to the to the size of the South population-wise, but also because of how strong its labor market uh, is. So in this respect, I would say the South is presenting the biggest challenge to the Fed as it's trying to restore balance to the labor market. You
0: know, uh, well said, but I don't I don't buy it. I don't agree with it. Uh, I don't like, like this whole excess labor demand thing but i'm not going to go into it here because we you know that would take us down a whole nother path but i gotta have you on i, I gotta i gotta work on you bernard i gotta work no. on. You.
1: that's yeah. a that's a different script
0: that's right. a different script <laughs> yeah that's a different script but i uh, but Jamie's i script. but i hear you uh but that was a good that was a good one good good statistic um adam you want to go next sure although i'll admit i made the rookie mistake
3: of Blowing through my statistic when I was talking about the CPI number. so I'll give you a different one. It's not <laughs> that is a rookie mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, this is not from this week, but it's relevant to the topic at hand that we're okay. going to talk about after this. Okay, about the the debt ceiling topic. Oh, the debt ceiling. Uh,
0: okay.
3: So the number is six hundred sixty-two billion dollars.
0: It's something to in the budget, the federal budget. Adjacent to the budget. Adjacent yeah. to it's, the budget. Okay. It's
3: related to the federal government. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. Uh, Ooh, and it's related to the debt limit. Is it the amount of interest payments, the dollar amount? No, was- no so it's, it, it's a category. If you're looking at sort of what
3: the federal government...
0: Spends its money on? Spends its money on. money
3: on, yes. The, Non-defense
0: is- discretionary spending, XVA. You're... You're in the ballpark. It's it's a little bit more general than that, but oh, because I think total discretionary spending is what Bernard, you know that number one point. Is it 4? just non-defense? Spending? Yeah,
4: one point four. Yeah,
0: non-defense, discri- non-defense discretionary spending. I, I think you guys well. are close
3: enough. I'll just I'll tell you what, yeah, what I'm okay. getting at. It's 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 government spending on contractors in particular. Oh,
0: because uh, so, oh, 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 that's important to the work you did on the debt ceiling. That's okay.
3: yeah, that's pretty oh, crucial see, to yeah. how we're thinking about the implications of the debt ceiling. I can hold off on that if you want to uh, yeah, until yeah, we get hold to on. that topic or. We'll okay, back. we'll come back to
0: that. But... This goes to you regionalize the uh, impacts of various debt limit scenarios, and this was a, an important uh, piece of information with regard to how to do that. Exactly, and the way yeah. just
3: one one way to put that in context, right? That's that's basically two thousand dollars for every American that you know that's associated with uh, government contracts to the private sector. So uh, it's, yeah. it's a very significant part of the economy.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, we'll come back, Chris. You're up. 4.4% in the CPI report? No. Uh, government it... statistic.
1: Yes, I uh I'll uh, I'll take the Mersa path it's a, from a Federal Reserve Bank.
0: Fe- oh, Federal Reserve Bank. Uh is it related to underwriting standards? Oh, it's a delinquency rate. Nope. It's not a delinquency rate? Is
2: nope. it a is it something that came out this past week?
1: Um it came out on May 8th.
0: Is it a balance uh, sheet, something on the Fed's balance sheet? No, it's it's
1: related to the CPI, related to inflation. Uh, Related to inflation.
2: Is it, does the St. Louis Fed have some sort of inflation? Oh, I know. It's the median.
0: It's the median. uh, You know, it's one of those wacko Cleveland Fed. No, no, no. (laughs) the uh, measures of dispersion of the mean, uh, no the mean the median the 16th percentile It's <laughs> no, none of those it, things
1: it's none of those things
0: inflation, inflation expectations inflation. yes oh so new york fed new
1: okay new york fed one year ahead okay. consumer uh expectations for inflation so 4.5 oh, okay 4%. it was 4.1?
0: 4.4 4. oh 44 okay yeah. is that up or down or we're where, well it's it
1: down from uh march this is the number for april down Three tenths, but oh. still above uh, where it was in February, which, February, where it had been down to four point one.
0: Oh, okay. Where was it at the peak?
1: At the peak, it was something like six, seven some, six,
0: Yeah, six, Bernard, five. Bernard, just, just, just to make the point, this is why wage growth is so high. This, this is the, the issue, uh, in my view, uh, not, not excess demand. Uh, I know you're listening to Chair Powell too much. You got to listen to. <laughs> Mark Zandy a little bit more. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing.
2: Uh, oh, that was yeah. good. one. Okay. I got a good one. Uh, I, it's hard though. Is it going to be a set of numbers?
0: No, it's one number. Actually, I ran <laughs> across it today.
1: That is the percentage of job satisfaction.
0: Oh, yes. (laughs) Very good. I I was hoping you would say that and I could be the one. That was my backup. I
2: knew it was. I knew it. Excellent. What is that? Oh, job satisfaction where? Here? Uh, Go ahead, Mark. The conference
0: board does a survey and they've been doing it for 30 some years where they ask a, a number of questions, I think 26 uh, questions in all about job satisfaction. You know, how do you feel about your job? That's basically, you know, uh, the, the bottom line. And 62.3%, and correct, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong in the way I'm articulating this, but 62.3% of respondents said they, they, they like their job. They're pretty good with it. They're satisfied. That is a record high. In, really? Yeah. And, you know, the, the conference board, and it made sense to me, ascribes this to, you know, the fact that wages are up across a lot of industries, uh, where, you know, in the hospitality industry, for example, uh, they're way up retail, way up. The other is all the job switching that occurred yeah. allow people to get a job that's consistent with what they want to do and their interests, and they're, you know, very happy with it. And I guess remote work probably has also played a role. People are pretty happy, you know, with the ability to get that flexibility from remote work. Yeah, well, I thought that, that was, was pretty. That cool. was the
1: particular. Oh, that was a, me. I I thought that was a really interesting point in terms of the satisfaction of people who like the flexibility, who want the remote work, but also want the in-person experience. That's, yeah, the yeah. hybrid experience. The hybrid experience, not yeah. remote work itself, but
0: the yeah. combination, the flexibility, really. Yeah, yeah. I I thought that was I I was surprised by that as, as that's a, interesting and very different from the consumer sentiment surveys right everyone says right. Oh, everything's <laughs> awful yeah miserable we're going into recession but every, you know I, oh i love my job i love my job so i that's think it's like your, uh, was...
1: what's that chris it's like your congressman right or congressperson yeah exactly yours, yours is, is is great but everyone else is uh, yeah it's terrible. Right.
0: Anyway, okay, L- let's. Uh, that was a good. That was a really good one. A w- way to play it, man. I was waiting for you to say sixty points. How did you know the- that, Chris? Because you were going to pick it? it. It was in the paper today. So. Yeah, it was. Um. A, it was. A, it, was a, it was in the. I saw it on the my on the web somewhere. You know, somewhere on the web. Um, okay, uh, let's go back to the debt limit. And uh, Bernard and Adam and I uh, updated these uh, debt limit scenarios. Uh, where we've been examining what would happen to the economy assuming we went down different paths for the debt limit, uh, different types of breaches of the debt limit, or s- different types of government responses uh, to address the debt limit. And this, this time, we not only refreshed, updated the scenarios, but we uh, uh, went and tried to figure out what the regional impacts were. And here we've really focused on state state economies. And uh, maybe Bernard, I'll turn it to you, and maybe you can provide more color around our thinking and what results we got. And then we can get down and dirty with this with Adam for a few minutes and get get a better sense of uh, you know what he what, what he learned from uh, doing this work.
4: Sounds good. So we considered only two scenarios. So one was a short breach scenario. So this assumes that we get we arrive to June eighth, which is our estimated X date, or the date at which the Treasury will run out of cash and no longer be able to pay all of the government's bills in full or on time. So in the short breach scenario, we hit uh we hit the X state, lawmakers do nothing, and a week passes by where the Treasury is scrambling to get enough uh to, to you know tr- scrambling to get enough uh, tax revenue to pay uh the the, the its incoming obligations. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, it lasts for a week. There's not too much of a direct fiscal contraction. So uh, we hit the, the X date on June 8th. But then just a few days later, around mid-June, you get another surge in tax receipts. So these are largely corporate uh, tax receipts as well as um, as well as quarterly estimated uh, tax payments by individuals who don't have their, who have their taxes regularly withheld from their paychecks. Um, and this provides a lifeline for the uh, for the Treasury. In this case, it limits the direct uh, contraction in, in federal spending that would be required. Uh, but still, there is uh, I would call this to be very similar to the, the TARP moment back in 2008 when the bank bailout uh, legislation failed and stock prices cratered, that applied a lot of political pressure on lawmakers to reverse course uh, and and ultimately pass the legislation. Um, so even though you wouldn't have a direct, you, you wouldn't really have social security benefits or other payments being disrupted, the financial markets would be very rattled, and that would apply pressure on on, on lawmakers to revor- reverse course and uh, Raise or suspend the debt limit. So here, uh, just at the national level, the you know this would be a pretty mild. A a recession would still result, uh, but it would be relatively mild, with uh, a close to one percent peak-to-trough decline in real GDP. Employment would decline by 1.5 million jobs, and the unemployment rate would rise from 3.4 percent to almost 5 percent. Um, and just for context, a 5 percent unemployment peak unemployment rate that still wouldn't be quite as bad as what we saw during more milder recessions, like uh, the 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 bursting of the dot-com bubble. Um, but you would still, you know, the the wealth the wealth effects would really kick in. Stock prices would be lower. Um, And that would, you know, and confidence would also be lower. So that would uh, be enough to tip uh, the economy into a mild recession, even though you have relatively quick uh, action. We then considered a second scenario. So this was what we call the prolonged breach scenario. So once again, we hit June 8th, lawmakers do nothing. And uh, the assumption is here is that they wait all the way till the end of July to actually get their act together and raise or uh, suspend the debt limit, uh, and the reason why they wait this long, we assume in this scenario, is because, uh, as I mentioned, in mid June you have another uh, surge in tax receipts. Through June, the the Treasury is able to meet um, all of its bills. However, and, and so that reduces the urgency for uh, on lo- on lawmakers to, uh, to you know to address the, uh, the to address the debt limit. However, in July uh, they continue to do nothing. But in July, this is a typically a month where the Treasury runs a budget deficit. So it's taking uh, in uh, much less revenue than it's than it's spending out. And over this period of time, you get de- delays to all sorts of payments, build up, build up, build up until you have uh, uh, the, the Treasury has to cut its spending uh, to match revenues by about one hundred and forty billion dollars. And for context, if you annualize that, that's close to six percent six or seven percent of gdp so that's a a a not insignificant amount of money that's being taken away from the economy so the direct fiscal contraction there is quite uh is quite large and ultimately we assume by the end of july lawmakers uh uh, get their act together, they, they raise or suspend the debt limit, uh, it just wouldn't be tenable for this to continue much longer, especially once you start to have more than 60 million social security recipients, for instance, uh, not being paid on time. Uh, but here, uh, this is this sort of bookends the, the worst possible outcome. Uh, you have a, a peak to trough decline in real GDP by 4.6%. You have 7.8 million jobs that are lost the unemployment rate rises to to eight uh, percent, and you have uh, stock prices lose uh, about a fifth of uh, uh, you know a decline by about a fifth, wiping uh, uh, wiping out uh, ten trillion dollars in household wealth, and. Um, you know, the, right now there's a lot of debate about fiscal sustainability, and you know the importance about reducing uh, the federal budget, federal budget deficits over the long term, and that's all well and good. But if we go down any of these dark paths, it actually leads to worse federal you know, fiscal outcomes because of the uh, because of a weakened, diminished economy uh, and higher interest rates that result from. Uh, this political, this extreme political dysfunction, you actually have an even higher debt to GDP ratios 10 years from now. So in our baseline, we assume the f- debt to GDP ratio 10 years from now is closer to, close to about 16, uh, 116%. Whereas in the this worst case scenario that we uh, consider the prolonged beach uh, breach, it's, uh, it's even higher at 136%. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really uh you know in terms of fiscal sustainability it really backfires you know going yeah. down this dark path of
0: course our baseline is not those two scenarios right that our baseline no, no. is that after a lot of drama some volatility in markets some decline in stock prices and gapping out of credit spreads uh, lawmakers will kind of figure it out they'll they'll suspend the debt limit until Matt lined it up with the decision around the 24 budget. They have to get this done to also keep the government open on October 1. Uh, So they have to raise the debt limit and they have to fund the government. They kind of marry those two things. And by so doing, they can generate the kind of the rhetorical political victories that both sides needs to sign on a piece of paper and and get this legislation uh, through and get, get it done. Uh, It's not going to be, Uh, graceful it's going to be pretty ugly but at the end of the day they're not going to breach but these scenarios were designed to say hey what if we're wrong and they do breach you know what kind of what would it might look like and we we bookended it the first one was Mm -hmm. kind of the least bad outcome the second the prolonged breach was uh, probably as bad as it's going to potentially get um Oh, okay. Great. And for folks that are interested, this is on on a paper that's in the public domain. Uh, I think it's called debt limit update. I think something pretty Mm -hmm. simple. uh, So you can find it there. Okay. uh, As I said, we took this down to the state uh, level, uh, try to understand what all this meant for different state economies. Uh, Adam, you want to kind of summarize what you did and what the results are? Sure. So what we did was really focused on both
3: model-driven channels that would transmit directly from our US model to our state model. Those would be things like government output and employment directly, financial services, and just the general cyclicality of some parts of the country versus others. So states that typically face more severe downturns, Arizona, Florida, Michigan, ones that are really cyclical, Nevada being another one, also are hit harder. All of that transmits directly from the U.S. to our state model. And those channels are, are fairly straightforward. But that that's not enough to really capture the idiosyncratic nature of this shock regionally. So we also hit a number of, of what we consider kind of indirect channels to state economies. Maybe the most important is the one that I, I mentioned earlier, which is federal contracting dollars. Right, So we know you know that there there are hundreds of of billions of dollars at stake uh, just from federal government jobs directly, right. And so if those are at risk, and obviously not all those jobs would be lost, but if a good percentage of those jobs are lost, that it has a very significant negative impact on the economy. But we also have that you know six hundred billion dollar plus number of of federal contracts that are that are out there that are going into the private sector. So, we looked at data from the government on where that money is going. And you can actually get this down to the state, even down to the county level, to understand where there is the greatest dependence. You can also look at that at an industry level. So we're able to determine, for example, that in Virginia, the, you know, the white collar industries in Virginia are very highly dependent on the federal government. And I mean, that's no shock. We're able to quantify exactly how dependent they are and understand that, you know, to say it like Connecticut, which is a very big uh, manufacturer of, of air, aerospace equipment, aircraft, uh, shipbuilding that, that goes right to the government as well, understanding the degree to which the government is contracting with firms in that state. And we were able to make adjustments to output employment uh, in each state, uh, kind of based on, on those data. That was probably the most significant adjustment that we made. But then we're also looking at reliance on uh, government support in terms of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, what that could mean for the economy. So in some cases, right, states that have higher levels of poverty, and that depend more on, you know, on programs like Medicaid or on uh, food assistance, on the SNAP program, right? those, those face greater hardship. Uh, states that have a, a larger share of seniors uh, could face disrupted payments to Social Security, Medicare, and it's important to note that even if payments are briefly disrupted, or even if they're not disrupted at all, just the the uncertainty and the concern that that kind of will pervade consumers in in these scenarios means that 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 spending is going to decline. That that healthcare usage t- could decline. So we look at you know healthcare systems, especially in rural areas, as being at particular risk as well. Uh, and then we're looking at, at financial markets and wealth effects and trying to you know, make some adjustments to income levels and have that flow through the rest of the model. So we we made all of these different custom adjustments and where we end up is with kind of initially the 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 shock that takes place. And that would be really concentrated in the second half of this year uh, is in primarily, of course, Washington, D.C. is it harder than anywhere else? It it basically sees an immediate or almost immediate spike in the unemployment rate by about five five points, right? It goes from about 4% to about 9% uh, right off the bat. Uh, a number of other states that are highly dependent on the federal government. So I mentioned Connecticut and Virginia, New Mexico, Alaska, Alabama, some other ones that just rely very heavily on government contracting or government payments uh, get hit very hard immediately. And then as the, as the recession evolves, what basically happens is that that recession begins to take on a life of its own. And it looks more and more in in a lot of ways like the Great Recession back in in 08, 09, where the states that are traditionally more vulnerable to a deep recession, again, the the tourism and travel dependent states, the manufacturing dependent states, they're the ones that have a much tougher time emerging. So in Washington DC, for example, there's a very steep shock initially, but federal government payrolls Go back to basically what they were before uh, the the, uh, the the situation kind of worsened initially, uh, right? And before the breach of the debt ceiling. And so you see those economies kind of get back to at least something resembling normalcy, where the unemployment rate is still very elevated, but kind of moving in the right direction. But the rest, you know, some of these more cyclical economies have a much tougher time getting on track, and they don't until late 2024, even into 2025.
0: Let me ask you this, uh, Adam: uh, Was there anything that really surprised you? Any state or region that got hit or didn't get hit that surprised you?
3: You know, I was surprised, and it seemed a little counterintuitive at first, but I think it it made sense the more I, I looked at this. Just the fact that uh, these manufacturing-centric states in the Midwest get hit hard, uh, or as hard as they do. So, you know, states like Michigan and Ohio where you know, the way I was thinking about this initially was, you know, this is not a typical recession, and it's not, right? I mean, I think there's this first mm-hmm. phase that we're we're looking at where government contracting and, and and reliance on the government is is really central to what happens. But I, I think what really struck me is the fact that there is this much more rapid rebound in in certain states that that I would have thought would would have sort of borne the brunt throughout. But when you think about it, I, I think. The federal government still serves as a stabilizing force. Uh, I, I think by the time you get to 2024 in those states, and just the fact that that this begins to look, in terms of you know which states are hit harder, more like a, a typical recession. I think that mm-hmm. that did surprise me at first, and it you know I, I had at first I felt like I had to convince myself, but the more I think about it, I you know I, I think that that is is very intuitive, and I think that that actually does make sense, and is the way that that a situation like this would unfold.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for, for all that. And uh, it, it, interestingly enough, got picked, people out there in the world really found this very interesting. It got picked up in a lot of different places. So good work. Um, okay, we have a few more. I want to uh, not belabor the debt limit discussion too much. One, because it's getting a little late in the podcast, but also w- we're going to come back to this. Like I have a feeling a lot over the next few weeks. Uh, Could so, I ask
1: one quick question?
0: Or? Yeah, yeah, far away.
1: All right. <laughs> So it clearly laid out the uh, the downside risk. I'm wondering if anyone has looked at the the other side of this. Could you argue the Republican stand? Right. What if? So it's a big game of chicken negotiation that's going on here. What if the Republicans actually get what they want? What are they fighting for? What is the potential upside of the economy, if any, that you see? Have you?
0: If if they um, got the piece of if the piece of legislation, the uh, what was it called? The
4: the Limit Save Grow Act. Limit Save
0: Grow Act if that got passed into law. Yeah. Okay. Right, well, we that's actually, the that's we, the debate here. Right? Actually, we did do that, uh, and you can go see the results. But uh, it, uh, it, and just to summarize very quickly, it cuts the growth in uh, discretionary spending going forward. It doesn't stipulate defense, non-defense, VA, but in all likelihood, when you sat down and did it, it would be non-defense, non-VA, NASA, uh, 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 air traffic control, national parks, you know, all those are things that would be cut to some degree, along with a lot of other stuff, uh, housing assistance and food assistance and so forth and so on. And a a number of things sort of outside the budget process, you know, uh, tax credits for green energy that was part of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, student uh, rollback, all the things that Biden, President Biden wants to do with student loans, easier permitting, cheaper permits for uh, fossil fuels, clawback of COVID release, a bunch of stuff. Yep. It, it, the thing that I'm not a fan, uh, the thing that uh, I'm not a fan, two things. One, the budget cuts begin right away in the fourth quarter of 2023. What what does everyone think might the world look like in the fourth quarter of 2023? According to you, Chris, we're going into recession in the fourth quarter of 2023 or close to. Yeah, especially if you're. Yeah, and, you're and you, and you want to cut meet, meet a significant cut to government spending when the economy is already on the precipice of recession. I'm not a fan. Second thing is, I I, I do think we need to address our long term fiscal problems through restraint on government spending plus. Increased tax revenue, but I don't know that I would focus on poor old non-defense, non-VA discretionary spending to do it, because under current law, that was going to fall anyway as a share of GDP. And it's already nowhere, it's not any higher today as a share of GDP than it was, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. So if you want to solve that problem, you know, addressing our long-term fiscal problems, you're you're barking up the wrong tree. That's not where you want to go. I mean, you want to focus on the obvious Medicare Medicaid Social Security that's where you have to go so I'm not a fan about the longer term implication the longer term the thrust of this it it's not you know getting to to the meat of the matter or the heart of the, the problem it's 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 cutting where you probably don't nobody really wants to cut anyway so that's that's my view but you can find it in the uh, in the paper uh, Bernard did I get that roughly right?
4: Yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and in response to Chris's question, I mean, I think the... Are you saying I didn't upside, answer his
0: question, Bernard? No, up no, there. no. Kind of. Okay.
4: I mean, the, you know, <laughs> I, I would add to that, that, I mean... It, you know, one upside could be if we actually do get some entitlement reform, uh, but uh, you know, in the way that we did it early on in the Reagan administration with uh, with respect to Social Security, again, that's a very long shot that we that something like that actually happens. But if we were to get immigration reforms, uh, entitlement reform, and uh, you know, some tax reform broadening the base, for example, I I think those would be uh, very small, but you know, they are upside risks in all this.
1: I guess my question is even more. Sp- direct or specific what you know i agree lots of things need to happen here this is not the best way to to do anything but let's say you just you know the democrats concede for the greater good and they say okay republicans you get everything you want on the uh in your plan what happens to gdp unemployment the economy over the next couple of years is it's well it it,
0: it gets hurt. drag or we go into, we go into recession
1: we go into recession anyway
0: right uh or we get pretty close we don't actually go in do we uh Bernard, we get
4: GDP growth is so slow that you, uh, you get lose jobs. Yeah, you lose Yeah, you lose jobs right on
0: the on the edge. Yeah, in the yeah. near term.
4: Yeah. In the
0: longer run, it's not significant in terms of what it means. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I thought you were asking what is there an upside scenario here? Could something actually turn out better than anticipated? And I'm not sure there's much upside, other than this increase the debt limit. Let's move on and get to the next time we have to address this thing that's probably the best scenario but that's the scenario everyone's expecting anyway so i don't know that there's any upside i suppose you you know you could do the 14th amendment i'm not going to go down that path but that no. you know that's a, that could end up in a better place actually right because if if you invoke the 14th amendment and say um uh you know the debt limit legislation effectively is not constitutional i'm not going to abide by it and the supreme court says yeah you're right you've now obviated the debt limit as a uh, legislation and as a, and that goes away I would view that as a major victory uh, because it, the debt limit is becoming a real problem and it's going to become an even bigger problem going forward given the political kind of environment that we are you know we're, we're facing and will continue to face going forward um what do you guys think it uh, do we have time for a question or two chris or you're saying no we, we should we take a question or right. two yeah, I'm, I'm always up for just one okay it's a little long if, if you guys if the listener out there is tired you know this you know you want to leave go ahead but you're going to miss the best two great questions that Marissa's going to pose or and, one and question, two great huh? answers we don't know what the questions are she hasn't told us but uh, fire away marissa give us your give us your best shot
2: okay this is an interesting question in light of the your statistic mark um wow. and bernard's okay this came to you on twitter
0: to me? Personally? You,
2: you oh. to personally. At Mark Zandi. Okay. Work from home and hybrid opportunities are expanding individual labor markets. There is the potential for quicker and better job matching. Shouldn't we expect lower frictional unemployment with potentially lower structural unemployment too going forward if this is the new norm?
0: That's my view. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, with remote work, as we kind of work, as businesses work through all the moving parts here to make remote work really work, that, you know, we will get better matching, you know, people uh, will find better jobs, businesses will find better workers, and uh, that should lead to less, less frictional and structural unemployment. So the sort of the natural rate of unemployment, the, the so-called neru uh, I think will be lower. I think that's a long time in coming because uh, it's make to make remote work as we, you know, our economics group within Moody's is figuring out because we went remote. there's a lot of things you have to work through uh, and make work work well to fully empower uh, you know this as a a, a tool for uh, better labor matching. but my my sense is that as we work those things through and we will, over time, that uh, indeed, it, it, and I do think this will be adopted more widely across the country because I do think, you know, uh, I think workers want it, uh, and they'll they'll ultimately get it. Uh, and uh, as it becomes more, uh, in, and as new businesses form, I think they're going to form not based on some office using experience, but uh, on a kind of a more remote work experience, maybe a, a hybrid kind of model that uh, these these problems will be addressed and we will see better matching and the natural rate of unemployment will be lower. I don't know that, it, I mean, we're not talking about a percentage point lower. Right. You know, we're talking a 10th or two, maybe three, something like that. So kind of on the margin, uh, uh, meaningful, not inconsequential, but it's, I, I'm not saying we're going from 4% to three. I think we're going from 4% to maybe 3.6, 3.7, you know, something like that. Uh, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I I'd emphasize the uh
1: the degree of the the degree is to my mind is going to be pretty small most jobs still can't be done remotely good point um so you know, yeah we'll get some better matching but I wouldn't expect a, a significant or very large uh decline in the net can rate.
0: anyone channel Dante because I think Dante has it Dante D'Antonio, our other colleague who's a labor market economist really good one. He doesn't he have a different view on this a different take does anyone recall no okay we'll have to get a different
1: take on productivity
0: yeah no on productivity I thought on this labor matching issue too he was he had a different perspective but no okay all right let's do one more so that was a good one
2: well there's one person who wants to know what they should write their thesis about if we have any ideas for them and there's another person who would like to know if they should buy a house now or wait till next year.
0: Well, I guess the question is, Let's can you do the those. house? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the thesis one's an interesting one, uh, but uh, maybe for another day. Not
2: really. Yeah, um, mm. I was more joking. I mean that those are actual questions, but we're not yeah. going to tackle these. Okay, this is one related to inflation. Okay, and this is something that we hear about all the time. I'm going to paraphrase this question so the question is about corporate profitability Ooh. and you know this is this has become very political in in yeah. my view from what i've seen is yeah. sort of blaming corporations for sort of taking advantage of supply chain problems and keeping prices elevated even after supply chains have eased right so how much do you attribute to that is there any way that we can measure that Um, what do you think about that argument that there are companies sort of bilking people taking advantage of higher prices and sort of corollary sub question is as people get used to a certain price level, right? Consumers kind of get used to just paying more for a hotel or airline tickets or whatever. Does that make prices stickier? as well just because psychologically people are sort of resetting their expectations to a different price level
0: Hmm. chris you want to i've got a view but you want to take a a crack at
1: it uh sure so on the first one in terms of the uh businesses and are they uh is there profiteering going on or
0: yeah you know is the inflation because of wider margins effectively that's the way you might couch it mm
1: -hmm. right right um you know It comes down to monopoly power, right? If you have, if you can exercise that power to make that argument, if it's a truly competitive market that businesses are able to, uh, an individual business could, you know, get away with that type of um, inflation increase. So, you know, I think we, I think there certainly are structural issues in parts of the economy. I think you can make some of that argument, but I don't see that as the major driver of the inflation that we've been, uh, experiencing still, uh, quite competitive, uh, overall. So I think you can find it isolated in incidents, but I, I don't see that, um, you know, it's the corporation's really taking advantage of the situation and, uh, uh, keeping prices up or actually accelerating, uh, price growth. Um, uh, yeah, that that's my take.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I'm in complete agreement. Uh, of course I, can we Let's shake. Yeah, That's, let's shake. That no. felt good. It felt really good that we're on the exact same page. Of course, the listeners saying, "Damn, I wish they weren't uh, in agreement here." <laughs> but if you, if you know, I what I look at to gauge margins is profits, total corporate profits, divided by corporate GDP or value added. To me, is kind of a an economy wide profit margin, right? And that's publicly traded companies, privately held firms, small companies, big companies—you know, the whole shoot and match. This is data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis coming out of the National Income and Product Accounts. Okay, I'm, I'm going to throw this at you. What do you think the margin was in 2019 by that measure? Total profits divided by uh, value uh, corp- corporate GDP. Kind of 100%. the what do you think the economy-wide profit margin is? This is this is a this is a before tax, not after tax. Mm, That's a little high. Uh, 20%. Actually, 19.6%. Because ironically, I just calculated this this afternoon, 19.6%. Guess what it was in 2022? 19.6%. Really? Not. They're off a little bit on the second significant digit, but no change in now I, I've always I'm always get a little nervous about how do you measure corporate profit margins. So maybe I'm not this might not be the exact right way to do it. But again, it's total corporate profits divided by you know, basically output. You would think that that would be a good measure of, of margins, and they have not changed. They've not changed. So
2: and that's economy wide across all industries. Economy wide right. in right. aggregate. Can you yeah. do that by you could do it by industry too? well i don't think i i maybe oh, the corporate you know, profit data is DA like
0: well maybe you could maybe you could yeah i, I take that back cuz you do have value added yeah by industry but, and you do have profits by industry so yeah we could take a look at that uh see what's going on uh but i don't you know there's a long list of reasons for the high inflation you know i don't think cro- corporate so called corporate profiteering uh is if it's on the list it's at the very bottom, and to Chris's point, I think it's you, you can find a case or two. You can find a company, maybe a small industry. Maybe you could argue the fossil fuel industry profiteered a little bit, you know. And the but that's nothing new. It goes just to the they just take global prices, and so when prices go up, they benefit. When they go down, they don't. So I'm I'm not sure I'd read too much into that. But might I, be
1: some I, of the regional. What's that? There might be some regional dominance. I don't know if Adam would speak to that right? so maybe a gas company that
3: is you know, yeah a maybe supplier right or yeah you know, yeah maybe right that monopoly power essentially could be concentrated in a region or two yeah. um right. yeah yeah
0: okay okay well i think that was a good question those are all very good questions uh and just to the to the, the listener please fire away uh, we we love the questions and we'll definitely come back and uh try to answer as many as possible in future podcasts Okay, uh, I'm gonna call it a podcast unless I hear an objection to that. I know Bernard keeps wants to keep on going. He wants to do the whole thing over again in uh he, I think he speaks Urdu or something.
1: You <laughs> have a uh forecast for the 76ers that we they can play make.
0: tonight, man. Good good game. Very good game coming up. Uh you know, I'm I'm a ai I'm a Philly uh fan and Philly fans never believe. So it's hard to believe <laughs> that they're gonna win. <laughs> It's the curse of being a because you know, they always get you know kind of there and then they can never quite get to the finish line. So, yeah. So, so what about you? You got a view? No, I'm uh totally. Yeah.
2: you're you're you're, you're not you're, you're you're uh totally uninterested, totally uninterested. <laughs> you're a, you're a,
0: a bocce ball kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Very good. All right. We're going to call this a podcast. Thank you, dear listener. We'll talk to you next week. Take care now.